The first reading is from Isaiah chapter 11, the branch from Jesse, and you'll find this on page 697 of the Church Bible. Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 10. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will lie down with the lamb, the leopard uh, will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. And that's, you can find that on page 967 in the Church Bibles. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and from the whole region of Jordan Confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the river Jordan. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptising, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? 
Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax has been laid to the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, I wasn't turned on. <laughs> Thank you, Esther. I, uh, my role uh, with CPAS involves me preaching about twice a month um, around the UK, and I sometimes say I could write a book on these, but clearly I, I'm not quite there yet, really. I've seen every sort of variety going. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful to be with you this morning, uh, a real blessing, not least because I've got a two-mile drive from where we live as opposed to often what I do, which is about 100 miles or so. So it really is a joy to be here. Um, I heard uh, a, a wonderful uh, story, um, uh, it's probably about 10 years ago, in one of the newspapers, and it was talking about an elderly couple, actually, and they were going on holiday from the north of England to the south of England uh, to Cornwall. Um, and they stopped at a service station on the M5, just north of Bristol, um, and it wasn't until he got to St. Austell that he realized he'd left his wife behind. Um, it's a wonderful. You never heard whether or not the marriage survived this, and uh, you always want to know these details. Um, but it's easy to forget, isn't it, in this season, uh, what the meaning of it, the heart meaning of it is about. I love Christmas. I love all that sort of paraphernalia and the shops and the presents and the meals and the family and all the rest of it. But it's been said so many times before, it's very easy in all of that to forget that as Christians, this is a time when we watch and pray, as Esther was saying, uh, expectantly with hope. 
And I wonder if, say, a non-believing friend were to ask you, you know, what is it the very heart of your faith? I mean, they'd look around and they'd say, well, yeah, the hymns and the liturgy and the symbolism and the services and all of that. But what, when you boil everything down, is it about for you? I wonder what you'd answer. Uh, just about 37 years ago, I was just leaving university. I'd been at a Pentecostal church for a couple of years, and the pastor there had a profound impact on me. It was great teaching. Um, they really took the Bible very seriously. Uh, and he grabbed my arm literally as I was going out the door for the final si time. I've never seen him since. And he said this, and I've never forgotten it. It seemed such a simple thing, but he said, Charles, remember, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And both our passages today, they're separated by about 800 years, but they have one supreme theme above all else. Both are prophetic and both point to Christ, to Jesus. They both envisage a very different future. And vision and the prophetic in the Bible are concerned with interpreting events to help us see things as God sees them in terms of the past, the present, and the future. And Isaiah directs our gaze towards a future time, to someone who's going to bring peace and righteousness and justice. And then, of course, we've got John the Baptist, and his entire existence was for the sole purpose of pointing to another. He was a man of huge faith and courage. I was moved, if I can just uh, dare to say so, by what Margaret was saying. You know, we talk about faith often in a waffly sense, but actually faith is messy. Faith is scary. Faith means taking steps which require courage. And one of the things I've seen in my Christian life over many, many years now is that almost never, never are, is there fruit without some step of faith beforehand, without some sense of cost. And I hope that you see that as an encouragement. Almost always that step of faith is a prelude to fruit that God wants to bring. But John the Baptist life is intertwined with Jesus. We read in Luke chapter 1 how the Holy Spirit came upon his father Zechariah just after John's birth. And in, prophesy, in prophecies, Zechariah says that John is going to prepare a way for the coming Christ. But he's a strange character. He's uncompromising. He's got the biggest PR problem that you could ever imagine because for a start, he insults everyone. His dress is strange and weird. Camel hair, his diet, basic locust, wild honey. He would have despised all the froth and superficiality of so much of our present society. And in the desert, he hears God speaking. Do you know so often in Scripture, the desert is a place where God speaks to His people. It's away from the distraction, from the bright lights of the city. Sometimes even it's a place of pain, but it's a nevertheless a place we can often hear God. And John 
and Isaiah herald a new vision, a new kingdom. You know, visions are powerful. They're often the prelude to <laughs> radical transformation, to something wonderful. Jane and I were actually in Bath Abbey on Friday night for the performance of the Messiah. Um, there's a lovely story associated with that wonderful piece. Uh, the handle servant noticed uh, his food and drink had remained untouched outside of his study. And he knocked on the door, he went inside, and he found Handel weeping, having just completed the Hallelujah Chorus. And the composer turned and said, I think I did see all heaven before me and the great God himself. Now, we don't know whether that story is apocryphal, but one reason I think there might well be an element of truth to it is that when you sit and listen to the Hallelujah Chorus, and somewhere like the Abbey, King of kings and Lord of lords, King of kings and Lord of lords, hallelujah, hallelujah. Its majesty, its sublime beauty is so incredible, I find it a lot easier to believe that Handel did indeed see something quite amazing, which inspired that piece. And so Isaiah and John herald, they look uh, towards a vision, a radically different future, but the thing is, they don't primarily point to a program. They don't point to a new politics, a different structure. John, for instance, is not a moral reformer. Yes, he does speak truth to power. You brood of vipers. It's one way of confronting the politicians of the day. But he talks about bearing fruit worthy of repentance. That's what he says to the Jewish religious leaders. And if he were here with us today, he would say it's about substance. It's not about style. It's about inner change lived out in here. Demonstrably different lives, not outward cosmetic change. He'd be looking at me and he'd say, Charles, are you the same person Monday to Saturday? that you are standing here in St. Swithams, or are there two people? And he'd be saying the same to all of us, uncompromising. But beyond all of that, his primary message, and that is, is that he points to a person, to a coming king. I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And this is how Isaiah puts it. A shoot shall come out from the stock of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. We're beginning to see in our world, aren't we, great upheaval. Brexit, Trump, there's a sense of Europe holding its breath about the upcoming elections happening at the moment. There's wider war and conflict fueled by well, all sorts of things. At the moment, extreme Islamic theology and ideology. Russia flexing its muscles. China becoming more belligerent. 
people and nations looking for a fundamental change in the established order and structures. But both Isaiah and John the Baptist say to us, look, there's something more fundamental still than change at a political level or in terms of religious structures and systems. And that is transformation at a personal level. And that the only person that can do that is Christ. The only person that can do that is Christ. They say it's through Christ that transformation can come. And he embodies truth and grace, justice and judgment. Those very words, judgment and justice, somehow in today's society, they jar, don't they? They feel slightly discordant with Advent. And yet imagine for a moment a world without justice, true dress justice, which starts from a foundation of genuine love and care for all people. Actually, something along the lines that we just saw in the video there. Isn't, isn't indeed that one of the root problems in so much of the world today. It's blighted by power games. Might is right, politics, corruption. A world where ultimately the distinction between good and evil, right and wrong, is lost. There's no sense of calling to account. That is the reality for many in our world and it's an unsafe and frightening place. And these passages, us, passages call us back that Isaiah says, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. John is even more uh, um, uh, specific on this. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Uh, Esther mentioned earlier Tom Wright and his book, and uh, I would just endorse what she said. If you've never read him, do so. Former Bishop of Durham, he's a, a leading theologian in the world, and he writes this, all future judgment is highlighted basically as good news, not bad. It's good news because the one to whom God's justice will finally sweep the world is not a hard-hearted arrogant or vengeful tyrant, but the man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. And all of this, say Isaiah and John, all of this will be made perfect, will be held in wonderful tension in Christ, <coughs> but that also he will bring supremely a kingdom of grace. And Isaiah really hints at this when he speaks of an end to suffering, a time of peace and grace. The wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. Grace changes and transforms in a way that nothing else can. All of this embodied within Christ. Well, what can we take away from these passages? I think they, they, they invite us, don't they, to um, ask the question of ourselves as we look forward expectantly in prayer and hope, what are the foundations we have 
of those expectations. Many years ago, well, a few years ago, I was at um, uh, Durham Cathedral um, for the graduation of my son, and it was Bill Bryson, who was the chancellor at the time, who was actually presenting the degrees. And the, when we were there, it was packed, and he said, well, the day before, we've it's been going on all week, so the day before, it was also absolutely packed. And he said, uh, he said you've got to be careful about the expectations you have. He said, I was here at the front, and uh, he said, students were coming up one by one. And as they came up, I shook their hand and gave them their certificate, and they sat down. He said, yesterday, a chap came up, and he said, I, I noticed he had two books in his hand. And he thought, he thought, that's fantastic. He said, some lovely chap is just going to give me a small sort of token, a gift of two wonderful books. And he said, as, I, as the guy approached, I went to shake his hand. He put the books in my hand and said, they're out-of-date library books, Chancellor. Would you mind taking them back? <laughs> and um, he said, be careful about the expectations you have. Where do our expectations lie? Uh, we should be concerned about politics. We should be concerned about structures and organizations. Those things matter. But primarily, I would suggest to you, these passages say our hope and expectation ultimately lies in Jesus Christ. That is the focus this Advent, this Christmas period. They point us back to Christ. And one of the things, again, this these passages uh, encourage us, I guess, particularly with John the Baptist, is that God doesn't need superstars, super confident people, people who've got it all sorted. What he needs is people who are willing through their lives, their prayers, their words, their practical love and care, their courage, their faith, to point people to Jesus, to point people to Jesus. I was praying with someone um, actually at Lee Abbey just about three weeks ago. Jane and I led a weekend there. And it was a very difficult, very, very difficult situation that this person shared. And I thought, you know, Lord, I haven't got a clue what to pray. But what I know is that you know more about this person than she will or I ever will. And that actually you can sort this. You can respond. Pointing people to Jesus. William Temple, the Archbishop, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, said this at his enthronement. I came as a learner with no policy to advocate, no plan already formed to follow, but I come with one burning desire. It is that in all our activities, sacred and secular and ecclesiastical, we should help each other fix our eyes on Jesus, making him our only guide. And maybe these passages invite us to say, how can we, this Advent, point people to Christ? Maybe it's in our words. It's having those sort of small steps of courage that are willing to say, to give a reason to someone uh, when asked about the hope we have in our faith, to tell them about why we had a great Sunday. Well, we had a great Sunday. We went to church. It was a, a fantastic video, a great service, just to be a little bit bold, help people to come back to the root of Advent, what it actually means. Maybe it's something like just in our Christmas cards or whatever messages we send, writing something which definitively, clearly speaks of the hope we have in Christ in a sensitive 
but nevertheless clear way. Maybe it's about praying for someone specifically day by day, this Advent period, that doesn't share faith, and just being a little bit relentless in our prayer as we bring them before God. Maybe it's about practical love and care and kindness that we can show through this period. Again, pointing people back to Jesus. Maybe it's simply, very, very simply, when we say the grace, a grace over the Christmas meal, we do it in a way that again points people, points the whole occasion back to Christ. Maybe maybe it's just about encouraging one another. Do you know, we're not very good often at encouraging one another, but I know when someone encourages me, somehow, somehow it just helps me to see Christ and all that he's doing in me in a little bit with a bit more clarity. Maybe it's about encouraging one another. The role I am is, in, uh, is a great privilege. Uh, I get a real snapshot of the church from country churches, uh, rural churches to urban churches, from large and small, right the way across the, sun, the, the church. I, I preach about twice a month across the UK, uh, and I, we're working with about half the diocese in the UK. And I have to tell you, I am more optimistic than I am pessimistic. I'm more optimistic than I'm pessimistic. There is something stirring in the churches in our nation. Churches that are reaching out to their communities in so many different ways. People attending Alpha courses, other outreach initiatives, the street pastor movement, messy churches, churches and Christians engaging actually in wider issues of justice and getting involved in their communities. But if I had to characterize one common denominator, it's the ordinary Christians seeking to work out their faith through all of their lives, Monday to Sunday, pointing people to Christ by lives that are different, being a little bit bolder in their witness, being more open about their faith. It's interesting, isn't it? Those early Christian disciples, they didn't pray for protection. They prayed for boldness. So this passage says many things to us as we think about how, how as a church, how as Christians, we can point others back to Christ. A leader of one of the megachurches in the U.S., uh, uh, a chap called Bill Hybels, you may well have come across him, often talks about the fact that he believes the local church is the hope of the world. The local church is the hope of the world. And my prayer is for you, that you as a church, that you as a church, but that you as individuals, this Advent period, would just reflect in all of this something of the hope of Christ to point our society, our community, to point our friends, our neighbours, those whom we work with, to point them again back to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Amen.